we now get to turn our attention to the Word of God. And so I'm going to invite up Megan. Uh, Megan is going to read for us. If you've got your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word as Megan reads for us this morning. Megan. Good morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me from you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may be present, everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Pray with me. Father, um, we acknowledge uh, that we are underneath your word and that we need to submit ourselves to your word, that we don't see clearly, we don't understand this world clearly, even ourselves. Like We don't even know ourselves fully. We need you to reveal. We need you to open our eyes that we might see truth, that we might engage with truth. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would do that. Uh, Father, as I've clearly already stated, that certainly I am a weak vessel. And so, Lord, I pray that, but that your grace would be sufficient, that you would speak through me this morning. I pray, as always, that if there's anything of me in our time together, Lord, that it would be forgotten, uh, that I would just be led not to say it, hopefully. Um, I pray, Father, that but if it's of you, that you will take these truths and you will, um, by the power of your Spirit, like plant them into our hearts and that they would grow up, that we might... Uh, be mature, and take on more and more and more the likeness of Jesus. So, Lord, just pray that you would be with us and that you'd guide our time as we look at your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So today we're going to do something a little bit different, when, uh, and what I mean by that is I don't often go backwards once we've gone somewhere in a book of the Bible. And last week, if you remember, we were talking about maturity, and we are talking about a lot of those um, kind of this, the things that Paul was talking about in verses 28 and 29 about maturing and growing up and what that means and, and that press for us. But as I was thinking about moving into chapter 2, there was this statement that Paul makes early on in this text, in verse 24, that I, I just couldn't get past. I just felt like, man, we needed to go back to, to cover that. Uh, and this week was even more and more and more reminded of the importance of this and this particular topic. And so I want to go backwards for the next couple of weeks and talk about something that Paul says. And before I reread this specific statement, we need to be reminded of exactly where Paul is when he's writing this letter to the people in Colossae. Paul is not on some beach lounging around writing letters to a bunch of churches in Laodicea and Colossae. Paul's in Rome. Paul's in Rome, and he's in prison. That's not a good thing. Like We can just kind of blow by that and think, oh, Paul's in prison. No, no, Paul is in prison waiting for something to happen to him. He doesn't know exactly what. If you know history, Paul never gets out of prison. In fact, Paul ends up being beheaded in prison. 
And this isn't the first kind of challenge that Paul has walked through. If you know Paul's story and you know who Paul was, Paul walked through shipwrecks and hunger and thirst and beatings and stonings and scourgings and all kinds of challenges in his life. And here's what's important for us to remember. Paul is just like you and me, meaning this. When you cut him, he bleeds. When he sees a friend die, that brings sorrow to his heart. It's easy to just read Paul like he's some sort of a spiritual giant and and he's way beyond us and and kind of depersonalize him. But Paul, he's just like you and I. When he didn't have food, he felt the pains of hunger just like we do. And what's crazy about that is Paul writes in Colossians this statement. I want to reread it. It's verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now that back half statement of I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that's a huge topic. We're going to get to that next week, so you need to come back to understand what he's talking about there. But what I'm going to focus on this morning is that Paul says, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. This statement should rub against all of our sensibilities. Like like salt in an open wound. Like it's easy to read this and be like, well, surely it's easy to rejoice in the sufferings when I'm being persecuted for my faith. But that's not the only thing Paul is talking about. In fact, the scripture is very clear that we're to rejoice and give thanks in only the good circumstances. No, all circumstances. So even in the midst of those moments of difficulty and trial and hardship, And what I want us to think about this morning, as we read that line in verse 24, like how in the world can Paul truly rejoice in his sufferings? Like that's that's a difficult thing. See, the reality of it is, is that there are two views of suffering that we all have in the midst of this world right now. Two, Two different views that are in front of us. One view is the view that the world holds of suffering. The other view is the biblical view of suffering and and how we should see the world around us. And if we are going to be the people of God, bearing fruit for his gospel, we need to understand the biblical view of suffering for his people right now, right here, in this day, in this age. Because if we don't, then it leads to all kinds of dangers and challenges. So let me focus quickly upon the Western mindset, the Western idea of suffering. Our world, the sensibilities that we're all born with, the the, the nature that we all have, the culture in which we grow up in, and we live in, in this place, we need to understand that this world tells us that the chief aim of man is the removal of suffering, the removal of discomfort, the removal of hardship, struggle, and pain. We want to avoid everything that feels bad and do everything that feels good. If it feels good, it can't be wrong. Like this is the mindset of everybody we are around. This is the mindset of our entire culture. I mean, just just think about it. Every single product on every single shelf in this country is made to make your life and my life easier, faster, better. Always. 
The vast majority of politics center upon arguments and different views on how to attain some sort of American utopia where everyone is happy, everyone is free, and everyone has access to wealth. Our entertainment is a means of escaping the hard realities of our world. Our homes are built around comfort. Our cars, our malls, our grocery stores, even our churches are built around comfort. Our idea of self and identity is about being who we are, giving into our tree, true identities so that we can be affirmed. There's a medication for everything. There's an oil that you can rub on every part of your body. Now, some of you essential oil peoples know this, right? There's a drink that promises for you to be popular. Maybe it's Pepsi, maybe it's Bud. Just watch the commercials. Right? Like everything is going towards this idea. Everything is full of warning signs, straps and belts and pads and ways to protect us from danger. We, we have on college campuses safe places for students where if they get triggered, they can go to a special room that has Play-Doh and images of puppies on TV screens. This is not a joke, though it feels like a joke. Because our entire world tells us we need to be safe Avoid everything hard. We are obsessed with comfort. And listen, I say this stuff and we can laugh and we can understand that that's there, but part of us would say, so what? Like, what's wrong with all that? Shouldn't we be safe? Shouldn't we look for protection? And here's the thing. I would say absolutely we should, and yes, until that desire becomes an idol. When that desire becomes an idol, when it takes preeminence, when we begin to see even the word of God through that lens as a primary thing, then that begins to lead us to the very place that we want to try to avoid, which is death. And we need to know that, church. Again, I'm not saying it's bad to want to protect ourselves and protect our kids or to avoid those things, but when it becomes an idol, it will lead us to death. This view of life, I believe, has so infiltrated us and as our culture, that we are like frogs in, in that boiling water. Like we don't even know that it's around us and that it's infiltrated the church. And it's oftentimes, even though we would never say it and we would never acknowledge it out loud, like it's in, engaged the way we view God. And it's all over evangelicalism. This view is absolutely in the church. For a lot of people in the church, God is just another means to eliminate suffering and discomfort. And we've adopted that view of him. With this view being our lens that we see scripture and we see God through, God can become a variety of different things. And I want to just real quickly show us the dangers. God can become a tool simply to take away our guilt. So here's the thing. We get our cake and we get to eat it too. Because not only can we pursue comfort and safety and joy and happiness and all those things here as a primary thing, but God also then takes away our shame and guilt for the next world too. Who doesn't want that? God can become a therapeutic who wants nothing more from us than to be nice and to be happy. I mean, this is the chief aim of man, right? We love God and then God will give us all of our desires. He's going to make our lives good. He's going to make our lives beautiful as long as we're nice to the people around us. And so I want to come to church, and I want to, I want to feel encouraged, and I want to just hear some sort of therapeutic means to make my life a little bit better. Now, that's there. It's all over. God can become a means to more wealth. 
Don't I deserve this? Doesn't God promise blessing upon blessing? Doesn't God tell me that He's going to open up the very storehouses of heaven for me? I mean, after all, if He wants me to be happy and to enjoy life, wouldn't it make sense for Him to give me more stuff? And so God becomes an avenue to that. God becomes a means to more health. When medicine can't help us, then we go to God. When doctors can't do it, then we go to God. He becomes a pursuit, some sort of an existential feeling, some sort of an emotional engagement. He makes me feel so peaceful. He makes me feel so good. And so we start chasing the experiences within church. Trying to find the experience that makes me feel good in my heart. Makes me feel like I walk out and I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. God's for me. God can become just a father that we run to to get the things that we want. So these things, they feel in a lot of ways right. They feel intuitive. Like this is what faith should be about. And I want to be really clear I don't deny, even in the slightest, that there's not some truth in each of these statements that I just made. But isn't that the way the enemy works? He takes elements of truth and then he deceives us, making us take the secondary things and make them primary things. To where we start looking for things from the hands of God instead of God himself. Like There's truth in these things. God does bless oftentimes, but oftentimes he doesn't. And that's the point. Fact is, if our view of God and suffering is this, it's going to lead us, when suffering does come, to start to shake our fist at him. Why would you let me do this? Or why would you let this thing happen to me? Or we'll be tempted to see him as unfair because we see people over there not doing the good religious things and they're getting the lack of suffering. And I'm experiencing suffering and so what's going on this seems unfair or we begin to say well what's wrong with me what did i do wrong that you're punishing me or that you're angry with me and you're allowing me to go through these types of things see if our expectation is wrong then our expectation from god is wrong and we're going to begin to view him with wrong lenses and wrong eyes and we will never be able to rejoice like paul in the midst of our suffering and i just want to remind us Throughout Scripture, there are warnings about this topic all over the place. Because I think this is part of our very core nature, to try to run away from this. Let me just read a couple of texts of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Like, he's saying endure suffering, but somebody was saying, no, no, don't endure suffering, gathering people around that itch your ears and help you lead into the passions that you actually want to live according to. There's another warning, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. This is a great list, right? Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, 
Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So what is Paul saying? That in the end times, that there's going to be this desire to start gaining things and, and pleasure and making that be the focus of our lives? We're going to be lovers of self and our own lives and our own monies? Be wary of it. Because of this, oftentimes what we want then is we want to hear words of comfort. And listen, this isn't new, brothers and sisters. This is exactly what was happening in the Old Testament. Look at the warning given to us in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. This is the warning about the prophets and the teachers of the law. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Do you get what's happening here? Instead of being told, like, repent and confess, and that there's things that really are going to go bad, they're saying, no, 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 have, everything's good. Everything's fine. In the context of the Old Testament, they'd be like, well, look, we're getting rain for our crops, and everything's okay when we're fine. Like, it's fine. Everything's just as it should be. In the end times, look what will happen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. There's peace and security. I could go on and show us so many other texts, but I think what we can see is we have this tendency to make peace and comfort an idol. An idol in our life that we should pursue. And the scripture is full of warning that these things can lead to the choking out of the gospel, our inability to hear him, pride in thinking that we did all this for ourselves, that we created these bubbles around ourselves, that we have control when in reality we really don't have control. It can even give us the danger that we will forget God as we're eating and drinking our merry lives away in safety. Since the Garden of Eden, I believe that we have always been seeking ways to escape the sufferings and the discomforts that are caused by the fall. We want to ignore them. We want to get away from them. We want to convince ourselves that we can get away from death Right? So we buy creams and oils to cover ourselves so that we can avoid looking older because we want to avoid that day. Like this is part of our nature. And we just need to understand that the world has a very different view of hardship and difficulty and suffering than the Scriptures have. And so now I want to turn our eyes and our attention to what suffering is through God's eyes. And I cannot possibly exhaust this topic today. But my hope is that we could begin to have a grounding and a foundation this week and next week so that we, as the people of God, can truly be able to rejoice and give thanks even in the midst of suffering. And let me be clear before I move on. I don't mean that when you get that call about cancer or whatever that is in your life, that you jump up and down and skip and smile and you're acting crazy. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? So just be clear. There's still real grief in the midst of suffering. And yet there's also a joy and there's a tension in the midst of that. And we need to come to that place where we can see that. 
So, suffering through God's eyes, first and foremost, it will always be with us. It will always be with us in this world. Now, here's the thing. There's a great tension that we as Christians live in, isn't there? Jesus, on one hand, came to destroy all the works of the devil. He came to destroy them all. And, and, and he has promised to restore all things. And so we have the hope of Revelation 21, where he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth, where there is no more suffering, and every tear is wiped from our eyes. That is not the reality of this day. It is coming, but it is not the reality of this day. So we have on this side of things, we have this hope and this longing for Jesus to do that. But we have on this side of things, the reality that that suffering still exists in our lives. Everybody had it in this room? Like, and we go, well, what is that? Didn't Jesus come to take care of all that? Well, in a way, one of the things that he's certainly done is he has allowed us in the middle in this, of this tension to be able to pray and ask Jesus to bring his kingdom to us in a way where when we say, your kingdom come, listen, when, when I was praying over a dear sister in the hospital yesterday, I prayed, Lord, your kingdom come, heal her. You bring that kingdom that you are going to establish and you come and you plant your reign right here in this hospital room in her body and you heal her. We have that privilege, amen? And the Spirit of God can work those miracles and he can grant those gifts and we long for that and we pray for that. But to think that Jesus is going to remove all of our suffering in this world is something he never promised. In fact, quite the opposite. Look at John chapter 16, verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. I, I want you to just think about that for just a second, though. Sorry. He says, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, our peace doesn't come from the removal of tribulation. Our peace comes from the fact that he's there with us in it. That's what he says. This is Jesus. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trial. That's what's going to come. Like, so just in case anybody tells you that, no, Jesus wants to remove it all, right here. This is what it says. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul says this, that he's seeking to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't say you're going to enter the kingdom of God and get rid of those tribulations. That's coming later. But he says through those tribulations. Let's just be clear about Paul, the great writer of the New Testament who God used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. Nonetheless, it was something that caused him suffering. And he prayed with God, take it from me, take it from me. God didn't. God didn't. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about weaknesses that cause him hardship and suffering. And instead of removing those weaknesses, God says, my grace is sufficient that I will be strong in the midst of your weaknesses. Paul saw hundreds of disciples murdered. Many of his friends die from sickness and disease. Paul had friends who had stomach ailments that weren't healed. Not immediately. Like this is the, re like the reality of Scripture is much 
more realistic than oftentimes we give it credit for. If you were reading in your, your Bible reading plan, you just read a few days ago in Acts, where James goes to prison and is beheaded, Peter goes to prison and gets out. So was James a worse apostle? This is, this is the way the world works in, in his Christian. He doesn't promise to take it away from us. He doesn't promise to take it away. We pray for his future kingdom to break through the brokenness of this world, to bring his glory into this place, that he could be exalted, that we might be reminded of his power, that our faith might be strengthened. We pray that he would do so in ways that would defy nature. We pray that he would do so in ways that would make doctors' mouths drop open and say, I don't understand. And he does it. The point is, there's no guarantee of it. There's no promise of it. There's no promise that if you just have enough faith, heaven can be found here. There's there's no promise of that. And when the Spirit does grant the gift of the kingdom coming forward, when He grants the gift of healing, when He grants the gift of raising from the dead, when He grants the gifts of providing out of nothing, it's a gift and a foretaste of what is to come. It's not meant to make us anchor more deeply into this world, but to make us thirst more for the one to come. And we pray it. Give me the foretaste of of heaven. And we believe he can do it. But he doesn't always. Second thing, we need to understand suffering. Suffering is purposeful. As I say this, I understand that this truth has to be deeply believed before you're in the midst of suffering. This does little good to comfort those who didn't believe it before they went into it. Meaning this, you see somebody who's suffering, you see someone who's struggling, it doesn't do a whole lot of good for you to come and say, did you not know that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose? Why are you grieving? You need to be anchored in this truth before the suffering hits your life. Being reminded that God is purposeful. God uses these things to bring suffering, to bring back his people from sin. He uses it to refine us. He uses it to test us. Suffering in Scripture is an opportunity for us to endure. It's an opportunity for us to be more conformed into his likeness. Suffering is oftentimes a way for his will to go forward. Think of Joseph. For him to be glorified, for the gospel to move forward. Paul in prison. Suffering is purposeful. And it's important to know that while God can and does turn suffering to good purposes, suffering does not stem from the character of God. It stems from sin and brokenness in this world. And while he uses suffering... And sometimes if he's in behind suffering, like the book of Job, he is never guilty of sin, and he is never tempted by sin, and he is never guilty or accusable of wrongdoing. But suffering is always productive for God's people. Romans 5. It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, truth be told, some of us would say, I don't, I don't want endurance and character 
I'd rather not have the suffering. But that leads us to then ask the question, do we trust our Father in heaven? Do we trust him? This is interesting because this is one of the reasons why outside of the Western church, when you look at persecution, you will rarely find churches pleading with God as their primary prayer for him to take suffering away from them, which just blows our minds. Like I've sat with people under suffering and under persecution, and, I, and my only prayer is take it away, take it away, take it away, and they just live with such an understanding and expectation of it. Their prayer is be glorified. Help us to stand firm. Make our faith strong. Make your gospel go forward. And I'm like, why aren't you praying to take it away? And for them, it's just like, well, it's part of life. And I think there's a balance there probably, but nonetheless... Like, I think this is why for us, it's something we all, that's a, it's the first thing, take it away, get it away from me, do anything I can to take the suffering off of my hands. Sometimes God uses it for good. Thirdly, we need to understand that when it comes to suffering, this is something that we are called to share in. This is in direct opposition to the world's view of suffering. Again, we do everything in our lives to avoid it. Jesus tells us, we are to lose our lives. Some scriptures. Luke chapter 12. And I know there's a lot here, but Luke chapter 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. That's a hard statement, isn't it? In our world, when everything is about trying to preserve my life, Jesus says, no, like whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Luke chapter 9, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's talking about this. And he says that I, he wants to uh, know Jesus and the power of his resurrection so that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Like, can you imagine saying, like, I want to become like you in a death like yours, Jesus? And we might think, well, this is just spiritual. Let me ask the question. Was Jesus' suffering only spiritual? Have you ever thought about the suffering that Jesus went through? He lived a life in which most everybody in his life hated him. He experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He experienced emotional suffering from the betrayal of some of the people that were closest to him. You know, you think about emotional suffering. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? He's crying so hard that he's bleeding. Like, Lord, take this from me. And then sitting and hanging upon the cross, and he cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Like emotional suffering, like he's experienced emotional suffering. Betrayal, physical suffering, and for sure being hung on a cross. So we're to share in this? We're to seek a death like his? Yes. Now, what does this mean for us? Do we give up everything? Do we beat ourselves? Do we seek out hard things? Should we spurn comforts and security of our lives? Should we judge those who are secure, who do have wealth in their lives? Is suffering something that's actually desirable? Well, guess what? You're going to have to come back next week to answer those questions. 
Because I we just couldn't do it all in one week. So, like, this is the teaser. The answer is that there's a balance in this. Like, we're not to go out there and, and beat ourselves. And God has given us real and clear ways to understand this. But today, as I kind of wrap things up, here's what I also want to recognize. That some people in this room, you're experiencing tremendous suffering. I, I, I just, this week, I have been reminded by that. Uh, like I said, hospital room yesterday. I was in uh, at a memorial service for a dear brother, uh, Lauren Thiessen. Uh, we got three phone calls from people within our church that, are, uh, that passed away this week. We've got people who have COVID who are in the hospital. I've got people who have every form of difficulty and suffering. I could name 30 of them right now. Some of us are in real difficulty and suffering and loss. And I pray that today helps that you see that this is your suffering is not necessarily due to a sin in your life. Now, if it's a direct result of a sin, then maybe it is. But I want you to be reminded, like, your suffering isn't evidence that God is angry with you. Your suffering isn't evidence that he's no longer with you. Like, that's what we can see from this text. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And I want to leave you, if you're in the midst of that kind of suffering, with three truths. And if you're not in suffering, you need to take these truths so you can encourage other people that you know are in suffering. And so here's three, three truths about suffering that I want to encourage your heart today. One, brothers and sisters, he answers all your prayers. All of them. He may not answer every one of them the way you want him to. He answers all your prayers. So here's my encouragement to you. Confess your sins. Make sure you're not cherishing sin in your heart. And then you go to Jesus and you ask for the boldest, craziest, most miraculous things you can possibly think of. And you pray that the Spirit of God brings the kingdom of God forward into the brokenness of this world. And you keep going to him. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you believe in faith that he will answer your prayers until whatever that thing is is resolved one way or the other. My sister who I prayed over yesterday, I'm going to pray that God would heal her body miraculously no matter what the doctors say. I don't care. My God can deal with it. And I'm going to pray that, hoping that one day here in the next couple of days she sits up in bed and is totally healed. I'm going to pray that prayer until he either does that or he takes her home to be with Jesus, in which case she's far happier. Right? Now, here's the thing. I want to leave this quote with you. I love this quote. It's, it's J.I. Packer's quote, and I didn't put it on the screen because I actually just read it this week, and, and I want to just give this to you. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says this. The meaning of he will give us all things can be put this way. One day, we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? I want to read that again. We can be assured that as we ask God for things that we desire, he will leave nothing with us. 
that will rob us of eternal happiness, and he will keep nothing from us that will increase our eternal happiness. So if you pray for God to take that thorn, and he doesn't, then you can know that that's ultimately for your eternal good. And you won't look back six billion years from now in heaven and go, man, I really wish you would have changed that one. I really wish you would have answered that prayer a little different. You will go, praise Jesus for not listening to me when I asked for it, like my kids who want cookies all day long. Right? He may give you a miracle. He may not. Regardless, trust in him. Trust he is good. Trust he loves you. Trust he is for you, not against you. And if you are in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you failed, you be confident in the blood of Jesus Christ. Second truth, he is with you. The greatest miracle of the Christian faith isn't that suffering will be taken, but that we, you and me, will never, ever, ever, ever have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why? Because Jesus already said it for you. That is the greatest miracle of the faith. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you never have to say, why did you forsake me? Because Jesus said, I will never forsake you. Never forsake you. So in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your difficulty, you be reminded that even if it doesn't feel like it, he is there and he is with you. He promises to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death not out of the valley of the shadow of death. He's with you. He answers all your prayers. He is with you. And finally, he will always resurrect. He will always resurrect. As we close, I want to point out something in Philippians to kind of tease where we're going next week to try to get you back next week because it's so important that allows Paul to be able to rejoice in his sufferings and I want us to be able to walk in this type of life. But Philippians chapter 3 says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss. He doesn't say I was super excited to lose these things. It's suffering. Well, let's just not mince words here. It's still hard, but he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now catch this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What we will see next week is that with every single death or suffering or trial in our life, we will experience in this world or the next some form of resurrection as Jesus works in those things. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Every single one of them. And while the world is busy to trying to figure out ways to save its life, we can trust in the one who promises to give us life and bring life out of every part of death for his people. Beauty from ashes. Life from death. Baptisms? Like, 
Aaron literally just said, like it was through the suffering of, of a, a horrible event from him and Jimmy's, Jenny's life that brought him back into the church. It led him to that moment. Like suffering, God's bringing from death life. What a promise we have. This is our hope. And so I encourage you, please, again, come back again next week to hear more on this. I'm going to pray. Father, I feel this is such an important thing for us because even in my own heart, like I know the tendency that when hardship comes to start asking all of these questions and doubts and, and struggles because I think all of us at some level have bought this lie that the removal of difficulty and hardship and suffering and trial and tribulation is part of the Christian faith. And yes, it is our hope, but as we've seen today, you never promised to take all of that away from us. And yet, Father, I want to pray for those in this room right now. People I know that I've prayed with over the past few weeks, and many that I know that have, I haven't, that are experiencing tremendous suffering, that they would be reminded you are with them. That you are there in the midst of the hardest of their times. And that there is a true and real way where they can rejoice even in the midst of their grief. That they can give thanks even in the midst of their grief. Not to wipe that away. I mean, even Jesus, your son wept when Lazarus died. And he knew within a matter of minutes he was going to raise him back to life again. But he, he, he knows the, the brokenness that comes from that. But Father, even in the midst of our grief, I pray and, and struggle that we would be able to rejoice. I pray that we would have a biblical view of suffering because as we seek to be faithful as your people in this day and age, the enemy is not going to take that lightly. Persecution is going to come upon the church. Are we prepared for that? I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us, that you would equip us, that you would anchor us to these truths now so that we could continue to bear fruit for your kingdom in our lives in the midst of all circumstances. But I also pray, Lord, this morning for those that are struggling that you would grant them peace and comfort. And I pray that you would grant them, brothers and sisters, in Jesus to wrap their arms around them and care for them and to be that tangible, physical body. I pray that you would strengthen faith. I pray that you would keep the enemy away from speaking doubts into their lives about your character, about your nature, about their own position. Father, I pray that you would truly help us to rest in who you are. I pray these things in your name.